episode of the Music Video Land podcast brought to you by your super good friends at imvdb.com, the internet music video database. I'm Adam, and with me as usual is Mr. Doug Klinger. How are you, Doug? Doing super good, having my typical 10 p.m. cup of coffee. Mm, well, you just gave it, you just you just pulled the veil back, and now the magic Ooh. is gone out of the out of the magic of podcasting. But we're gonna bring the magic magic back real quick because we have a pretty awesome interview for this episode of the podcast. We have Mr. Dale Arrestagini, who uh, his name you should definitely be familiar with. He has directed, uh, by some counts, over 400 music videos. By other counts. Uh, even more. And he's done this in a pretty relatively short period of time. He's been in the business for a little over a decade. Um, he's moving into, into feature films, but he's still doing a little bit of music video work. And some of the music videos you may be familiar with that he has directed uh, are Crank That by Soldier Boy, or Soldier Boy Tell Him, whichever you prefer, um, from 2007. Um, he's directed a few uh, Soldier Boy music videos, a Cookie Jar by Gym Class Heroes are some of the more popular ones. But he's directed uh, videos for a whole lot of artists, um, just to name a few, Fall Out Boy, Dilger, Escape Plan, um, uh, Tyga. Uh, every member of Dipset. Every every member of Dipset, pretty much. Um, and uh, including Diddy Dirty Money. Uh, he directed Love That's Coming Down. Yeah. That's yeah. a... He he got him during his Diddy Dirty Money phase. Is he still in that? I can't. I don't even. Remember. Diddy Dirty Money. Well, technically, if we're getting technical, Diddy Dirty <laughs> Money is the name of a band or a group. It's Diddy and two other people, ladies, I think. So we. Uh, this is a great interview. We talked a lot about um, his career. He's had a really interesting path to get to uh, his career, as well as some um, uh, a lot of really interesting stories about uh, you know being a really extremely active director in a time of a lot of change in you know uh, the music video industry. Um, and we also talk about those changes over the last 10 years and about his move to film. So here it is, our interview with Dale Restagini. My name is Dale Restagini, uh, also known as Rage in the music video world. I'm a music video director, producer, uh, conceiver of, of concepts, um, and segueing into film and TV. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the, the time period where you, when you got into music videos, because I know you got into music videos, you know, in, I think around your mid thirties. Yeah, actually just my, I was 34 when I did my first music video. And what happened was, um, you know, having lived a kind of crazy life, my, my whole my whole goal once I decided what I wanted to do in my life was, was, was make films. I realized that the one place I could always go, wanted to go anywhere at any point in time was a movie theater. So I never did drugs. I never, I never drank. Um, but I used to get in trouble and I got arrested a lot. So I was always in a crazy place, but movie theaters were my place. I just loved to go and retreat and just escape. So once I decided I was going to, um, you know, um, make that, you know, um, my, my career choice, I was at maybe 26, 27, who starts that late? I, did, I wasn't like Spielberg where, you know, my dad gave me a camera and I was like four and I started making home movies. It wasn't that kind of story at all. And I wasn't introverted and I, where I read books and, and, and poetry and, and I discovered film that way. I just was a guy that liked movies and I decided that I could do this because there was no limit to the kind of time you could have been put into it. No one could tell you no. Um, 
at least starting out and you could just do whatever you want to do. And, and I came from the, the, the mind frame of the harder you work, the better the rewards and no one will ever outwork me or hustle me and therefore my, my rewards should be great. So as a basis of wanting to do this, it was it was my love for the medium and then it was something that fell into my particular skill set and wheelhouse of, of, of being able to just work really hard at something. And how did you find your way kind of breaking in? What, what was your kind of path into the industry? Well, um, in, jeez, uh, uh, of all the times I I got incarcerated, the last time I, I was there, I, I wrote a script based on the situation that got me in there, and I ended up writing a, a creating a, 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 I wrote the script on an old school typewriter in the facility, and then when I got out, I wanted to have it, I just wanted to act in it and, and be credited as writer. And because I had no money, people liked the story, but it was the first script and I had ever done. And, and just, you know, this was back in New York City, back in the early days of um, everybody now regards it as the Independent Spirit Awards. But the girl that actually, the woman that cut my film, um, her name was Sabine Hoffman. She now cuts a lot of stuff for uh, Rebecca Miller, Arthur Miller's daughter. Um, she was best known at the time when she did my film for, cut, for cutting a film, which was great from a director named Morgan J. Freeman. Um, it was called um, Hurricane Stru- no, no, Hur- yeah, Hurricane Streets. Yeah, Hurricane Streets for Morgan J. Freeman. Um, and this is got back in New York when Green Street Films was just starting out. A Good Machine was around. The Shooting Gallery was around. I would run into people like um, Jim's John Wish in the Street, Roberta Benini, um, 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 got everybody in independent film. And... Um, October Films was just started. Uh, it later became USA Films. I knew Bingham Ray, who ran it, who just recently passed away. Gary Winnick, who recently passed away, was a, was a, was part of this. If you guys you guys may not remember this, but Bravo had a uh, had a, a situation where when Mini DV was the the new thing, Mini DV was the new thing. They had a slate where they did a ten films for hundred thousand dollars. One of the most successful Gary did was called. Um, Tadpole, which starred John Ritter, who passed away, and I think Sigourney Weaver was in it uh, as well. Um, and so, back during this time when independent film was sort of in its in that phase, um, Sabine tried to get me to, um, you know, stay in that world. And it just and as much as it, I, I could, just I I, I knew Todd uh, John Sloss, who you know is the lawyer to people like Kevin Smith and and. Um, uh, got all those guys. Uh, anyways, in short, the kind of films and community she was in was just something I, it just wasn't me. I mean, I'm a blue collar kid from Massachusetts, raised by a, a fireman father and construction worker. And um, I just, I just, you know how to get shit done the old fashioned way, do it yourself. And so, um, and I grew up loving action films, popcorn movies, Tony Scott, Michael Mann, Ridley Scott, Spielberg, Lucas. I mean, those are the kind of movies I just, I just love to go see. So, that was in me, so um, so I did that film. Called, it was called Colors of Rage, uh, on twenty thousand bucks, and the money it wasn't all in at one one time. It was it came in, you know, two thousand here, one thousand here. Where I literally picked up the truck every day, picked up the equipment which I got from CSC um, for free, and I had to return it when we were done filming every day. And and it was just, I mean, I literally did everything. Everything I, I can tell you, I I don't want to get caught up on that particular story because I could get 
just daily was a grind. I, I remember getting arrested looking for lo- locations with, with, with my then girlfriend, now wife, Kim, in, in Harlem. I mean, that, that, that in itself is a movie. But let me jump past that. So after I made Colors of Rage, um, I was focused on wanting to do my, you know, like a real big film. Uh, I, I ended up having to direct it because I couldn't find anybody to direct it because I had no money and I was an unknown person. So after going through all those different film companies and getting nice rejection letters, I said, you know, I should go do this myself. Hence, Raging Nation w- w- was born. And I ended up writing, directing, starring, producing, everything in it. I ended up getting it um, shown at the Urban World Film Festival back in 90. It was called the Urban World Film Festival in 98, I think it was. Uh, it was only only its second year um, running at that point in time. Whitney Houston came to my screening. Samuel Jackson came to my screening. I got a nice standing ovation. And certainly it was a flawed first time filmmaker's film, but the heart and soul was there. I had a whole lot going on. I filmed in like three different uh, states and I had singing going on. And I it was just, I had Redman in, in his first film. So I had a lot going on for a little tiny movie and I ended up selling it for about $250,000 to a company called Unipix Entertainment. So it was successful in every way. So then I wanted to do something bigger, and of course it takes time um, to get that moving. And at that point in time, in the late 90s, music videos had just started to really get really, really big with Paul Hunter, um, Nick Quested, Hype Williams, and all those guys. And I said, wow, you know, this would be great to get in. So then I started to hit the music studios because I knew people that owned studios. I would run into people like Buster Rhymes and, and Puff, I mean, I was working as a as a SAG background talent in, in TV shows and movies back then, too. And I worked on a, on a day on New York and a cover, which was a big show in, in the day. And the, one of the episodes I did, I played a security guard. It had, it had Biggie in it. It had, it had Yolanda. It had uh, Fredro Starr. It had Treacher Naughty by Nature. It had Sticky Fingers, um, um, MC Light. And it was just, you know, an iconic time to be in that world in New York when hip hop was just so big. But, you know, music videos were, were um, when I would ask these artists and their managers about getting in the mix, I was like, oh no, we're using such and such because he's my fam and such and such, he's my fam. There was just no way in. I, after two or three years of trying, even though I was still making inroads in film, getting into music videos because I saw it as a, as a way that, because, uh, um, what's his name? Um, Brett Ratner and Steve Carr were guys that were going from music videos right to films. Because, and even Paul Hunter, at that point in time, because videos are so huge, you were making like super high-end commercials and mini movies with with the budgets that you had. So it showed Hollywood, well, these guys can handle budgets, but can they make a movie? So it was like three or four or five guys a year that were making that jump. Whereas if you if you fast forward to today, the last guy and the only guy in the last eight or nine years was Mark Webb, and that is because having done a lot of my own meet and greets with production executives and 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 um. Um, studios is they don't have a, re- a high regard for music video people at all. They really mm-hmm. don't. So um, it's one of my little things I try to let younger film uh, di- video directors know that you know you need to think about doing short films. And I was never a short film guy. Just to, I know I'm jumping around quite a bit, but as I say, one thing it leads me to another. When I was starting out, I was like 26, 27, doing Colors of Rage. People suggest making to a short, but I was like. Dude, I'm 20. I'm almost going to be 30 in a couple of years. I can't. I'm not 18. I can't afford to make a spend my 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 my, my money on a on a film, a short film that is just going to be seen in a in a because there wasn't a market for even monetizing, you know, short films back then. So I couldn't waste three or four months of my life to make something that no one's going to buy. So I decided to make it into a feature, and that's what I did, and I and I, and I sold it. So, um, uh, it sounds like the. I mean the. The environment that 
you got into and the environment now are completely different. I mean, with those huge music videos and, you know, the larger budgets and these kind of marquee name for directors like Paul Hunter and, and, um, and those other guys. And, um, you know, I'm wondering when, cause, cause, you know, after that, you know, you've done so many music videos. I know that. Yeah. Well, it, so, so what happened was before I got sidetracked. So what happened was, um, I would go to a lot of sets and I would run into every one of those guys had one or two protégés that they were bringing up as an AD or as a, as a gaffer or a DP. And so I wasn't in anybody's family. I wasn't in anybody's line. And I, and I, again, I was, I was, I came in older, so I didn't want to start out like I was a PA. I just, I just mentally couldn't wrap my head around it. Financially couldn't wrap my head around it. So what I did was, uh, um, enough people in in the film industry in music industry knew me, and I just happened to meet somebody that said, "Hey, I know you're a director. Um, do you want to film this this tour in 2000 called Tattoo the Earth?" And um, it 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 um, had bands like Slipknot that was new coming out, Mudvayne, uh, Hatebreed, um, uh, Sepultura, and then on spot dates were like Metallica and and um, Stone Temple Pilot. So I took this tour just because, hey, I could, you know, travel the country with some of the world's biggest metal bands and, and um, tattoo artists because they, they also had the world's tat- top tattoo artists. I'm on this tour and boom, I suddenly was re- reintroduced to rock and I hadn't been listening to rock since my high school days in the, in the, in the, in the mid 80s. So um, it was a, a cultural um, awakening for me and and. On that tour, I just met so many people, and that's why I had a brand new XL1, which was a great camera, which was a mini mini DV back in the day, and it was you could hold it on your shoulder, you can get in mosh pits, you could run around from stage to stage, and it was just a great camera. So I shot that entire tour with with, with that camera, and sure enough, I, I made enough friends, and, and a lot of those people knew that I was, and it was cool because one of my best friends today I met on that tour named Jamie Josta. Who's a singer for a, a band called Hatebreed, and Jamie actually gave me my first music video ever for a song called, appropriately enough, called Perseverance. And once that video aired on MTV and my name was on it, it literally set a uh, like a mini atomic bomb off in that in the hardcore metal world. And before you knew it, I was working like a maniac because a lot of those videos were so low budget. They were just getting guys that didn't know what they were doing, or they weren't very good, and they were just kind of crappy little videos. Um, and so when I did mine on film, and we had a location that looked epic in Jersey City, and we had snow was falling, we had fire, and it, I remember this day. I still remember that day like it was yesterday. It was so free. It was literally six below zero. I didn't go in the trailer <laughs> one time, not one time. And and everybody else was going in and out, getting warm. And uh, later on that night, I realized when I got home. My wife was like, how are you feeling? And I had this massive, I don't know, felt like this attack in my back because I, I guess my back was contorting. It was so freezing, but I wasn't aware of it. And it was just a, the funniest experience. But that video opened up the doors for everything. And I, I went on such a tangent in that world for like three years. My first video, my first year I did, after that video, I did like maybe 10 videos that year. And then the second year, I did like 50 or 60 videos. Third year, I did like 100 videos. And I started to get... You know, then I started to use that as as a way to get indoors for doing other stuff. And finally, over at uh, after getting shut down and so many other labels for doing hip hop, because it's always that stigma: well, you do this, you can't do that. Uh, John Frank at at Koch hired me to do a video for Head PE, which was a um, sort of a rap rock act. And then um, that helped me get a. He referred me for a job for um, Joel Santana featuring Cameron and Little Wayne. 
and that was my first ever real hip hop music video. Then the very and on that set, I got hired the next day to shoot a video for Jewels featuring Young Jeezy and Cameron um, is, uh, and Little Wayne as well. And then that set me off doing like sixteen straight Dipset videos with Jim Jones and and and, and Cameron and and Joel Santana and that whole Dipset crew. And then that got me into Atlanta. And then because E1 had Atlanta artists, and that set me off doing everything and eventually i got like mims this is why i'm hot then i got soldier boy cranked that then i got you know i never had like a uh, um like a, a rihanna or or a chris brown to to help take me to the top i always had guys that like were were like middle of the road star soldier boy was the biggest at one point um but again he was never regarded as a crossover pop like justin bieber so but i had enough friends that, that kept coming back to me because they loved what i was doing that I could, I could, you know, create uh, a movement, so to speak. So it's from doing all those videos in rock and metal and hardcore that forced me into the door of hip hop, and and then you know I, I just it's like anything I've ever said. Once I get my foot in the door, like in the case of what's about to happen in Hollywood, once I get my foot in the door, everybody sees what always happens. It's always like you know, decimation. Like I'm just there's no prisoners. I'm just gonna do what I need to do. You know. I, I'm, and I'm curious about the, the the stuff that you've done with Dipset because you, you mentioned before how um, you know you were you were having trouble kind of breaking in and doing videos for a hip hop artist even if you knew them because you know they were they were giving the videos to their fam somebody else who they already had this well, yeah, established it, it, relationship. Well, yeah, it was just them. I later found out too, and and I don't mind saying this: the the the, the music video system, especially then when there was a lot more money going around, it was. It was definitely very shady. Like commissioners were giving, were giving solely just on the merit of having a, a friend that had a production company. They would only steer their artists to a certain production company, who who um, which was owned by their friend, and that friend had three or four directors, and that's how it worked. And then there was payola, whether it was actual cash in hand or whether it was um, a commission of getting a brand new Fendi bag as part of the budget or getting. Mm-hmm. You know, as, I'm not even kidding. Getting massages by by top, mas- you know, masseuses in, in the particular you know region they were in. Any any way you can imagine, g- given a gift, this was part of the system of how you know. Yes, ultimately, talent will sustain you, but there are a lot of people that didn't get jobs because they just weren't in the right situation, and 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 because I came in late and I wasn't taking any bullshit. I think a lot of it was. Um, Who's this guy think he is? Well, first of all, you know, having been, I, I know I'm unlike many other directors. My, my path that got me to where I was, not too many people that I know, if any, went to jail. I literally got arrested 50 times, spent almost four years locked up, all before the age of 24. So having been through a crazy life and learning how to defend yourself and live in that environment. So when I'm introduced to the world of music videos and I'm dealing with Penny Annie commissioners that are trying to block me, are you kidding me? Like, I will run <laughs> over you. Like, I will run through you, over you, and run circles around you. And, you know, just, that's just the mentality you got to have in this life and in this business. So nothing was going to stop me. So that created a lot of, um, um, I mean, I got a lot of fans, certain got a lot of fans, but then, you know, certain commissioners just like, who's this guy? And it, I, even at one point, it was so crazy. I had literally four videos on maybe I think 106 in Park or MTV, all in the top 10 countdown, and my name was there. And I would still have some commissioners say to my rep or me, oh, who, what has he done and who has he worked with? I mean, that's the blind ignorance and hate is just so obvious at times. It just was stupid. So 
again, you just work, 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 and let your work speak for itself. And, you know, they, they, they can try to deny you all, you know, for as long as they want, but ultimately your work is going to sustain you. And that, that's what I did. I just kept working through all, all, all the hate and all the bullshit. And, you know, doing so many videos, I was wondering about the sort of logistics of that, because you're doing one every few days. I mean... No, I literally would do, for example, I remember one week, and actually, um, I was with Busta last night in a studio um, in the city. Um, I just did a video for him called The Alleged, and, and so I'm sitting there with him, and he had Revolt TV on, which is Puffy's new um, station, and I remember seeing, I saw some of those videos, and I see what Puffy's trying to do now, and so I'm actually putting together a little list of... Uh, of, you guys will see it on my Facebook shortly. Um, I titled it um, "Long Before My Homie Puff Declared There Needs to Be a Revolt, Rage Declared There Needs to Be a Raging Nation." And and I'm actually putting like ten or fifteen videos all done for five grand or less, which I also know are kind of what a lot of the video budgets are today. And you, but these were shot on film, and you're gonna see that wow, you know, this is just really. I just love seeing what's happening now in in hip hop, and and this is all due to the financial chaos this this business is in which is why things are getting dumbed down and cheaper and made to look certain ways but he, you know and even before i don't claim i invented anything but i'm saying that it's cool to know that you know what's being done now it just like I, the same argument excuse me for jumping around like a lot of these locations i filmed at like and i still film at today like joel's joel's place in la called the poodle parlor which is a place that it's a stage a warehouse that me and people like Darren Doan and Shane Drake were shooting out for years doing rock videos that had no budgets to them. But then when the first hint, you know, first, the first hint of the downfall of the, of the music video budget climate hit like a few years ago, suddenly Diddy's filming there, Bon Jovi's filming there. It's like what used to be regarded as, oh, why would you film there? Or why would you use this DP or this, or this stylist? Because um, we were finding enormously talented people and resources that we could fit inside our little budgets and we were looked down upon for using certain people and go filming certain locations. But suddenly these people were like, oh yeah, this is actually kind of cool. Now, oh yeah, we could shoot there because their pockets weren't suddenly so big and they wanted to keep the money going in their pockets for their, for their own personal use. So it's sort of like a lot of hypocritical stuff going on. And so I regard revolt as like a bit of that, you know, because, you know, certain artists affiliated with that whole regime when money, you know, was just so crazy back in the day those those people would never be associated with anything so lowbrow you know but now lowbrow is cool it's edgy it's youthful you know counterculture and when you're around long enough as i'm sure you guys are is i don't know how old you are but when you another 10 years from now and 10 years after that you're going to see well we've seen this story heard this song seen those lights heard that hook <laughs> and it becomes kind of repetitive so um it's just kind of nice to know that you can say you know what we were a part of you know, sort of the original run of of, of this vision. So, would you say that the the budget change or the the budgets going down would be like the biggest change you've seen in the industry in your time in it? Uh, well, no, I think it's it's the it's the internet. Um, the internet. Funny enough, I just heard a song last night on Sirius. I was flipping through Sirius. I forget what channel it was, but I heard a song. I forget the name of the group, but they were oh no, not not the Churchers. It was the song was called. Internet killed the video star, and I remember I was a Soldier Boy in the studio about three years ago in L.A. with Clinton Sparks in Pull of the Dawn, and he had a song that he was working on called Blowing Kisses, which I suggested that he get Taylor Swift on, and he never did it, and he kind of blew an opportunity. But I was telling him he needs to sample this song called because I because I'm from the '80s, and I have so many 
great hooks and remember, uh, remember so many great songs that haven't been tapped yet. I said, you need to get the song by the Buggles, and I played it. It's called Video Kill the Radio Star. You need to flip it and do something cool with it before somebody else does. And so he didn't listen to me. Well, we talked about it, and I had somebody actually do a rough track, and it, it just never came to fruition. But literally eight months later, Will I Am did the same track with Nicki Minaj. And actually, I told him to use Nicki Minaj. I told him because Nicki's voice is just sound, sounds just like the girl on, on the song. And Will I Am did it, and it became a smash. But then I just heard, like literally last night, a song called Internet, Internet Killed the Video Star. And I didn't know that it could be flipped that way because the word Internet, the way, it, the, 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 the way it breaks down phonetically when you say it, it actually works. So I said, well, you need to take the concept of Video Killed the Radio Star and flip it relevant today. He didn't do it. He missed it. And Will I Am didn't flip it that way. They used the, the hook as it was. But the scoop called Internet Killed the Video Star. So to answer your question, Internet, the Internet and the, and the increase in technology has just dumbed everything down. And what I mean by that is um, everybody can go to the store and get a camera and record. And everybody can edit. And so as a result, there is just so much stuff out there and so many emerging voices and, and, and talents. It's just so hard to, to declare yourself as unique. And the people that are in the position of having to hire somebody are more likely going to lean on people they worked with before because they trust that, they know that, and um, you know their job is very uh, high risk at this point. Anybody in a job in entertainment, if they make one screw up, they could be gone because they'll be replaced by an intern. And um, it, it's a crazy time right now. I was sitting with Palak Patel, who is a development head over at Joe Ross Studios, and I remember sitting with him when they were when they just hired Sam Raimi to direct um, the new um, um, the, the Oz, the Oz movie with with, with, with um, James um, what's his name James um, Franco. Yeah, yeah. So he, they were happy because they just nailed Sam Raimi, and we were talking about a, a project they had for me called uh, 12 Years, which is an alien takeover thing. And we were talking about, he was just in general about music videos for a minute. He's like, I don't know how you guys even deal with that because I sit on the board of Sundance, and you know, this year alone we're getting, last year we got a million submissions, and we barely had enough eyeballs to handle you know, the intake, and we're expected to have two and a half million this year, which this is like going back two years ago, and we don't have enough eyes and hands to handle this stuff. It's just, it's just so many, and so I'm thinking, wow, this kid from Des Moines could have the most incredible little short film that will never get seen, and he'll be discouraged, and maybe he won't direct ever again, or, you know, it just will exist, and maybe he'll continue to, to, to sputter along, but it just, it's just a crazy time. There's so much stuff out there. And I just had this conversation yesterday with somebody about music. Oh, it was um, oh a lawyer who's handling one of my film deals, and um, they represent a bunch of music clients as well. And um, they he had said uh, just on a personal level, he's like, yeah, I feel like I'm missing out on so much good music because there's so much stuff out there. I said, well, you can't make yourself feel bad because you don't have the time to sit and try to find something you don't know that you're missing. If that makes any sense, because it, me, I find myself still listening to the kind of music I love, whether it's something to piece out like with like Enya. Or whether it's listening to, you know, old school, you know, Jan Hammer theme thematic music to Miami Vice, or whether it's, you know, my '80s, you know, or freestyle '90s, whatever the case is, you like what you like, and just because technology allows for 10 million people to make music doesn't mean you have to or can listen to everything ever created, and that's why you or myself will one day just hear that. Oh, my friend's going to a show and there's three million people there or, or they get 20 million views on YouTube. And you're like, I never heard of it. How is that possible? It's 
it's like that because there's just so much stuff out there. So, um, so um, I guess that kind of answers in a long-winded way your question. No, it does. Do you think, yeah. do you think like, the goals then, since since the you know pre-internet and post-internet days, the goals of a music video are different now? Do you think that the, uh, a video is accomplishing something different now than it, than it was when you first started? Um, in general, the music video is supposed to be, for lack of a better description, a commercial for the act so they can sell more music. Um, has that goal changed? I guess if you look at it as the economy in music isn't about selling music anymore, it's more about selling t-shirts and concert tickets, uh, maybe it's shifted a little bit, but I mean the goal remains the same. The, 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 the video will hopefully drive people to, to buy your stuff, whether it's a ticket or a t-shirt or a song, not an album, and that's the big thing, and you guys are probably aware of the uh, the numbers. Prior to the Napster world uh, of, of in downloading and iTunes and Spotify, prior to that when it was just physical sales at stores, a label made pretty much $10 for every, for every album sold. It cost them a buck to make, and they sold it for 11, 12, 13, 14 bucks. They made 10 bucks. So when Mariah Carey came out selling 3 million albums the first week, they made $30 million. So it was $10 per unit on average they, they, they were figuring into their spreadsheet. Now it's like 39 cents or 89 cents. So when, when the internet came and destroyed that model, that's the, why there was a three or four year period of like, okay, the labels are going under. There. I mean, that's why you used to go to Interscope. Universal, there were three or four or five floors of employees. Now it's one, and half that floor are, are all interns and unpaid. Uh, so it, it, so so going back to your question, has the video, um, has the reason for creating videos changed? I don't think it's changed as much as it's just shifted a little bit because again, the idea is to make people want to buy more. But the thing is, getting the eyeballs is is a hundred times more difficult because it used to be. When we made videos, it was more attractive to us because you could see your name on TV, and it was like it was helping brand you, um, as well as the artist. And you could only see videos on TV. There was no other way to to to, to see them. This was before MySpace even. So um, now with the internet, only because videos aren't seen on, on TV anymore, um, pretty much. So uh, if you're a fan of, say, Tyga who I did his first video for, um, and you go to his, his MCN, Multi Channel Network, or, it, or the column next to the video being played, they will, they will show like-minded, listening, sounding artists. You're going to live in that world. You're not going to know about you know, Diplo, or you're not going to know about you know, the streets or, uh, you know, different art, or different artists around the world. And you're, different, you know, you're not going to know about Ramstein. You know, it, it just, it's, 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 so it's really limiting um, today in terms of music videos. As much as you might think it's it's open and it's huge, it, it really is limiting because you know um, a consumer, a viewer, a listener is only going to be sort of they're, they're being they're being told where to listen, to, where to go, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And and you know you mentioned you're going into films now, moving away from music videos. What have you had to change in terms of either your style or, or how you work? Anything? No, I, I, I this is what I've I've learned. Um, fortunately, before doing all the hip hop stuff, I did many many videos for rock and metal, and I could do darker stories, darker images overall, darker tones, and 
that got me through the door. And and I don't mind speaking out loud on this. I mean, I know there's a couple of guys that have through relationships. I know Jesse Terrero, who is um, you know a, a friend. Uh, he he came up with Fifty Cent for the most part, and and Wiesel and and Yendel, whatever those uh, uh, Israeli guys are, and 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 through his association with Fifty, he's leveraged a really good relationship with with some with some people who I'm now doing business with, um, and he was able to you know do some hardcore straight to video like high end looking high budgeted projects like up to ten million dollars, and so he's he's off and running in his thing, and then there's Outside of like him, guys in like the last ten years, only myself and I think Anthony Mandler. Um, and again, I I'm, I pretty much look at the landscape of, of music video directors in a very competitive kind of way. That's just how I am. I grew up playing hockey, soccer, and baseball, and everything's a sport. Growing up in Massachusetts, that's in Boston, that's what you do. You play sports and you want to win. So I'm like a boxer. You know, you just look at your competition and. Um, and so Anthony, who's also a friend, uh, he he had a project over at Who's Wagner, I believe, and I think it was put in turnaround, but I think he's attached to something else. Um, you know, and I I know I don't know everybody, but I know a great deal amount of people in production at the studio level, and I know who they're talking about and what they're talking about. And because there's so many out of work feature directors and feature DPs. Those guys are more likely to get a job over an emerging filmmaker, a video guy, because they've already been to the show. Even if they've been to the show and they and they bombed, they still were to the show. So, um, so having said that, I think because of Anthony's overwhelming work with Rihanna and a few of his other artists, and my my over overwhelming volume and and diversity and plus having to meet these executives and getting conversations, they need to like you as well as the work because they can maybe like a video you did, but if they don't understand that, if they don't believe that you can actually move uh, a, a crew for 30 days and make an incredible film and you can't wrap it and, and they don't believe that you can actually, you know, uh, tell the story, uh, the inner workings of the characters, you're not going to get past, you know, the first meeting. Um, so, so myself and Anthony, and, and I'm sure there's one or two other people out there, but there's not a lot of us right now being talked about in Hollywood circles for doing a major motion picture. And, and a major motion picture opportunity nowadays is, um, you know, it could be a million dollar film, two million dollar film, as opposed to back in the day when Paul Hunter, who um, did a film called um, The Bulletproof Monk with uh, an associate friend of mine, um, Jamie King, who was an emerging model at that point in time, with Chow Yun Fat, that fit when I think it was the guy from American Pie, Sean, um, I forget his name, Sean. Klein? No, Scott Klein. Was that his name? Yeah, I'm not whatever sure. It is. Something, so, yeah, something like that. Bulletproof Monk, a $100 million budget, and it bombed. Wow. Yeah, I know you guys can Google it and check it out. But Yeah, it's a, uh, Sean William Scott is the guy. Yeah, yeah. So so that was Paul Hunter's film debut, $100 million, and it bombed. So he got put in director's jail forever. I don't think he's done anything <laughs> else since. No, that's what they call it. They call it director's jail. I'm not even kidding. They call it director's jail. Um and, you know, guys like, you know, Hype Williams um, and, and, you know, guys like that, uh, you know, sometimes if, if you don't hit it, you will be put in director's jail and it's hard to, it's hard to come out. So, um, you know, uh, it's just <clears throat> to make that transition into feature films, it's <clears throat> harder than ever because they don't have any regard for 
music video directors. So like, oh, well, literally, they said, well, yeah, you, you guys just push cameras around and, and you make lights go on and off. Yeah, or, or, you know, or you get in the black box and you add day gold colors and you crane in and out. Like, that's what they say is, is they, that's what they regard, regard what we do. Hmm. So, but fortunately, again, I've got so much ugh, diversity. Uh, <clears throat> and then once you, once you, if you're able to get into a room, then you can really go into, like, they really get to know who you are. It's more than just a reel filled with, you know, Johnny completely superstars that are going to be here today, gone tomorrow, and they get to know the real you when you get to sell. So getting into that room is hard. I mean, it's almost, it's, yeah, I mean, everything's a catch-22, but that's what you need to do. You need to blow people away with, with, with work that will get you in the door. And then everybody thinks, well, let me do a short film, get it on YouTube, get a lot of views, and that is even a hustle. And there's backdoor ways of getting views, and, the, you know, we're all aware of these certain avenues that we can pursue. And, you know, it's a lot of luck, it's a lot of timing, and it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of work. And, and when you, you know, you, you mentioned you've, you, you're mentoring some, some younger up-and-coming directors as well. Is, it, is that mentoring kind of to show them how to use music videos to get into that film realm? Or, or are you Well, no, like, just- like, like early on, um, back in the MySpace days, it was guys like uh, a, a director named Was Good. We used to be a photographer. Uh, Mickey Finnegan asked me, I think was it him or Endeavor Media asked, well, I mean, I knew Mickey from my, MySpace too, but also Endeavor Media, uh, who just did a, a short, I think called Blood Brothers, which did good at Sundance. They had asked me what kind of lens I used on a video I did for um, Silverstein, I think, or Follow Up Boy. And then they, yeah, so, and then they, Colin Tilly through, in Luga Podesta, we all knew each other, I think, through. MySpace, all prior to, to Facebook. So as much as I could, you know, refer them to Colorist or, you know, let them know what I knew about, you know, lenses and just stuff like that, I did. And and on Facebook, it's, it's you know, when I say mentoring, it's like when people hit me up, I just don't not respond. I respond in a way that kind of answers them, but also lets them know, you know, this isn't like a, I got to turn this off. I just can't spend all day. I mean, it, it, my ego is very much in check, so I know I know what it's like when you're trying to come up and you reach out to somebody. And and again, let me even just put a time error perspective on this too. When I was coming up, and and why I am regarded by a lot of the elders that are in the game today, and ex- at as executive levels, and at labels, and at film studios, and a lot of my friends have come up and gotten jobs at studios, and we kind of have this Trojan horse mentality. I mean, one of my friends just got named as the as, as assistant to the guy that runs a major studio. One of my friends works directly with, with the guy that runs um, 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 WME. So, like, I got a lot of my family sort of were, were taking over the system, so to speak, over the next five to ten years. But when I was coming up, you could only get a job by calling up on the phone or going and knocking on a door. That was it. There was no Googling. There was no Facebooking or poking or tweeting or searching, oh, how do they shoot this? Or what lens do they shoot this? Or what software did they use this? There was none of that. Zero. Absolutely nada. If you wanted a top colorist like Bolion or, or, or Jace uh, from Bobine to color, your, to color your, 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 your film that you shot, your actual film, not the video from a the film from a video you shot, you had to call up on the phone, see what the rate was, if it was too much beg, uh, you know, you had to go, you couldn't just search online for locations that go on foot and, or drive. It was gorilla. I mean, and that's why, you know, I knew I could outwork, out hustle, outrun anybody and make the inroads that, that I did because 
I, I just wasn't lazy. And nowadays it's a very lazy game because you can just go online and search things out and hit people over the email. So, and that's why to some degree, depending on who you hit up or what person they are, what company they're at, they may not have as much regard for a newbie as, as say somebody they worked with in the past because they didn't come up the same way. So it's a little perspective on that. And I, when I tell you, like when I was, I literally have to take the subways back when it was tokens to, to find, I, I would walk from studio to studio, label to label, in these boots, I was so broke. Was, I would have calluses on my feet, blood on my heels. I'm not even kidding. And I was so broke, but I would literally pound New York City's pavement looking for the opportunity. And it eventually came. And of course, you know, it all it all worked out. But that's really, really hard work. And that that hard work, people respect. Not that they're not going to respect some great videos and somebody who's really, you know, that you can get at somebody. But I'm just to give you some perspective. Today's hustle is different than the hustle before the internet. And that's why some of us will always, you know, be able to, the phone will ring because somebody we came up with is, is, is looking to reach back and, and give us a job, you know? Well, Dale, thank you so much for talking to us. We really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Cool. 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 Um, All good. All good. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is really fascinating. So, um, uh, we, we, we will, I know you mentioned editing it down a little bit. Um, for any name mentions, well, if there's anything you need us to cut, we'll we'll kind of look for it and, and take it out. Um, yeah, and if you guys want to email me any questions, I mean, honestly, there's so much stuff to I can't even be. There's so much stuff you can get into. It just literally is a, a um, it's an ocean of discovery for music video, um, and, you know, uh, you know, directors and producers and 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 knowing where all where every single penny goes and, and working on crew rates and DPs and how do, how, how do you decide how to hire this guy with this guy and, and and just to touch real quick, a lot of my DPs now I use on jobs because the budgets have come down are good guys with a good eye that may not have been able to get work as a DP 10 or 15 years ago but because they have their own gear they can hone their craft while they're working and it's sort of like a compromise. We, you know, I get to help mentor a new DP because they've got his own gear because I wouldn't have to hire just a DP on his own, then go rent the camera gear and rent the insurance. It's, it's, it's a, it's, so it's, it's a very unique time. So anytime you guys want to you know, ask other questions about other things, feel free. But definitely make sure people go to my Facebook page for Crash the Sky, like it, and check out the sizzle because that's what's on deck for me next with uh, – Boo Boo Stewart from Twilight, and he's playing the new um, guy, a uh, superhero named Warpath in the new X Men um, uh, film. Uh, and I got Tracy Lords, and I have uh, Rob Deerdeck from MTV uh, as a producer and also as an actor. So, uh, and I got John Hammer who's going to do my score. So there's a lot, a lot of cool that like that literally is going to open up the door for so many of my other things I have going on. So definitely go to Crash This Guy at Facebook. venture to guess, Doug, that most of the other directors we have had on our podcast have, I've, I don't want to just speculate, but I'm going to, uh, most of them have not been arrested. No, no, at least not as frequently as Dale. Maybe they have a couple of, you know, uh, uh, smaller charges on their, on their, on their record or something like that. You know, we can't, can't be completely blanket, but I, I think that, um, Dale still takes, takes the top mark. And, and with, and, and, you know, not, I wouldn't say with pride, but it's not like he's, uh, 
he mentioned it in an interview, so it's not like he's he's trying to pretend like it didn't happen. But he's kind of you know most people are uh, have difficulties succeeding post several arrests, so it's a testament to Dale for sure. And uh, we we know that it's not because of the interview, but also because uh, Dale has a, a little kind of featurette that that is about him, which is actually very informative. It covers it covers like his ch- childhood and um, kind of his you know his life up to making music videos, and features uh, interviews with a few um, hip hop artists such as uh, Busta Rhymes, and DJ Khaled, just to name a few, mm-hmm. and. Uh, um, well, you know, this this was one of my favorite interviews because we really learned a lot. I mean, like we've been doing, we've been talking to a lot of directors at a lot of different levels in the industry, and uh, we heard some some stories about the use of budget and uh, and stuff like that from the earlier days in music videos when we weren't paying as much attention to them um, that were very interesting and that are definitely not happening anymore. And so, how do you um, know, Doug? How? Do well, you I don't know. know for, I don't know for sure, but it would essentially be. I mean, if they were, if there were massages being paid for, that's like half the budget now. So, um, you know, that's they got to take that into account. If you do a pie chart of a of a hip hop music video budget now, the pie, the massage part would be that would be a big chunk. You can't it's just big, you can't just sneak that away. Right. Somebody's going to notice that, right? Right, right. Yeah, before you could lose like you know a couple grand in the budget and be like, oh, that's that went to snips, and then now it's like that. Now that's your whole budget. It's like. It's like, wait a minute, went to what? That's everything. What did you do with it? And it's like, you know, I was assuming. And so, yeah, um, yeah, not happening. Very interesting, though. I was in. I, I enjoyed having that information now in my brain. And now everybody else I was listening to has it in their brain, and that's what these podcasts are for. We do interviews uh, uh, once in a while, but we do a weekly Thursday or Friday. We release it roundup of, of all the music videos from the week. And uh, you can find that right here on this podcast feed. Just go to imvdb.com slash podcast. And you can find us on all the usual places. Um, you know, keyword Oprah or keyword imvdb on oprah.com. Uh, Facebook.com slash imvdb. Twitter.com slash imvdb. All those places. Um, we have an abandoned Pinterest account if you're interested in that. Yeah, if you want to see like three <laughs> or four music videos from a year and a half ago. <laughs> that's definitely what you're interested in. If you want to, and uh, if you really want to dig deep, you can find our old filmed insert Tumblr from like two years ago. That's where you'll find our top our top ten music videos from 2011. Mm-hmm. There and only there will you find it. So <laughs> check it out if you're a freak weirdo. So um, I'll, I think there might be a few freak weirdos listening to this. I don't want to. I don't want to stereotype again, but again, I will go ahead and do it. There's nothing wrong with being a freak weirdo. No, not at all. So, uh, very, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you very much to Mr. Dale Restigini for sitting down and talking with us. Uh, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Yeah, we I mean that at one word to describe us hustlers. <laughs>